You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Fantastic. Well, my name is Alan, as you hopefully know, unless you're a guest or a visitor. I'm one of the leaders at City Church. And this morning we're going to be in the Lord's Prayer again, as we've been working through uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And uh, it's part and parcel of our 100 days of prayer that's already been alluded to this morning. Uh, And following on today from Emily Olty's wonderful sermon last week uh, on Forgive Us Our Sins, uh, we are coming to the, the, the part in the Lord's Prayer that talks about uh, lead us not into the time of trial. In fact, here's the verse. We'll put it up on the screen. This is from the NRSV translation. It says, Do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Uh, if you weren't here last week and you missed Emily, can I urge you to, uh, to download, stream, listen, whatever Emily's sermons. If, if you're in her small group, just get her to tell it to you again. Um, that'd be good. Uh, a bit longer, maybe, but yeah, let's, let's just get that into you. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, a few of us as elders just went, that was about the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> we need to up our game. Um, so, so well done, Emily. It was fantastic. Uh, this week we're in this verse then, do not bring us to the time of trial. Uh, before we begin to unpack these words, I just think it's worth reminding ourselves again that this whole prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is not a standalone piece of spirituality. It's not something that you should really extract away from the whole of the gospel and just make it to be this thing, just this prayer that floats around in, like, just in free form somehow. The Lord's Prayer, as we've been trying to point out over and over again these last few weeks, has its roots in the person of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. Now, Jesus gives the Lord's Prayer in order to teach the disciples how to pray. But if we separate the Lord's Prayer from who Jesus is and what he said and what he did, then it can very quickly become woolly and toothless, like an old you. And nobody who really wants to pray really will be satisfied with prayers that are woolly and toothless. And so we need to keep bringing our minds back to that, remembering that this is part of a whole picture of who Jesus is. And so do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Perhaps you are more familiar with this translation. This is how the NIV puts it. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This reminds me of school assemblies circa 1984. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, Uh, And probably getting half of the words wrong as well as a a young child. Lead us not into temptation. It's not really a bad translation as it goes. But perhaps it's been weakened slightly by the way that our culture in general regards the word temptation. And also along with that, how perhaps Christians have in general thought about temptation. So culturally, let's say, temptation has basically come to, re- come to refer to the urge to, I don't know, to, to go rogue, 
to do something a little bit out of the ordinary, to, to, to go crazy. You know, I, I was out and I was, I was tempted. I just had a couple more drinks than I should have done, but, you know. Or the temptation to spend a little bit more money on something, to kind of max out the credit card. The temptation to kind of, you know, something that's kind of generally received in culture as acceptable, but we're tempted, you know. It's something that's, oh, I quite would like to do that. There's an urge there somehow. And, and Christians, I guess can also construe temptation as the urge to do something. But there's a difference, isn't there? The Christian sense of temptation as an urge to do something is normally regarded as an, as an urge to do something that is sinful and therefore should be resisted. At best, out of love and faithfulness to God. And at worst, out of just a fear of the consequences. Or perhaps the just within a particular community of people, it's not the done thing. So if we're happy with asking our Father in Heaven to keep us from the temptation to personal peccadilloes, and on one level there's no reason why we should be unhappy with that, then we've basically got this. Job done, let's move on. We know the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Okay, fine. Shortest sermon ever, sit down, we'll sing a few more songs, break bread and go home. Not so fast. It's me. <laughs> no such thing as a short sermon. I want to ask you this. Doesn't it strike you as being a little bit unusual that when we compare these two translations, and if we can have them up on the screen, please, if we compare these two translations, it's not immediately obvious that they are making the same request. Lead us, not into the, lead us not into temptation is not, on the face of it, the same as saying do not bring us to the time of trial. Yet both of these English translations are attempts at translating Greek language, and it's very difficult to translate an ancient language into a modern language, and idioms and things like that that exist in Greek might not exist in English, and so it becomes a little bit complex. So what do we do with the apparent difference? How do we decide which one is preferable? Should we try and decide which one is preferable? I think it's at least worth asking the question. When two different translations throw up two quite different versions of a same verse, it is very worthwhile giving attention to why. Now here's a little Greek word for you. It's going to come up in very bright letters. Ah! The word that is translated trial or temptation is pyrasmos. It's a great word. There's another Greek word for temptation that's used in Matthew's Gospel, which is scandalos. You know, you know the word scandal. It's the roots of our word scandal. But in the Lord's Prayer, it's pyrasmos. And it's the same word, actually, that comes up in 1 Peter, when Peter says, for now you have had to experience many fiery trials and the word pyrasmos and fiery trial, you kind of get in the field, don't you? Whoa! It's like fire starter or something. Pyrasmos. This is the word that is used in the Lord's Prayer. So what I think it is really helpful to do is to consider the places in Matthew. And this is the next slide. I think if uh, we consider the places in Matthew's Gospel where the word pyrasmos shows up, compare them. Let's get a sense of what happens if we look at that word 
in its many occurrences, don't worry, there's not many, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. And let's see if we can get some insight into what it means by doing that. Now, as it happens, there are three occurrences of the word pyrasmos in Matthew. It's 28 chapters long, and there's three occurrences of pyrasmos. And I think that's quite significant. And that is sufficient, it's just enough for us to be able to cover this morning, to get our teeth into. It's meaty enough that you'll feel full, but not bloated. It's stretching enough that you'll go, hmm, but not, ugh. Okay? Just want to encourage you, let's engage, we'll engage the grey matter a little bit this morning, and let's look at what these, these mean. Here's the first one. It's in Matthew chapter 4, and if you're, if you're at all used to the Christian scriptures and the Gospels, then you might know about this. This is in, uh, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And that's the word pyrasmos, again there. Jesus is tempted by the devil. Now that happens immediately after Jesus has been baptised. It's quite interesting. Matthew 3 uh, describes Jesus being baptised. As he comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him. And God speaks and says, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And it's a moment of great significance in the Gospels where all manner of biblical themes are converging and coming together. And they're all focusing in on the person of Jesus. Now to sum it up, Jesus is being represented in his baptism and in God speaking and affirming him as a son. He's being represented as somehow standing for all of God's people. It's like he's doing the exodus again, by himself, going into the waters and out of the waters, okay? And God has just said that Jesus is his Messiah or his king. So Jesus represents his people and Jesus is Messiah and king. And I don't have the time to unpack all of this in great detail, but there's one key thing that we're supposed to see happening here. And that is that Jesus, as the representative of Israel and the representative and, and God's chosen anointed king, as he enters into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil, the temptation really and truly is a temptation to sidestep God's way of him being king, which is the cross. Okay? In other words, Jesus has, Jesus has come into the world, he's baptized, he identifies with sinful people, God affirms him as the king, the spirit leads him into the wilderness, and in the wilderness, all the temptations, it's not just, oh, go on, Jesus, go on, be a little bit naughty, turn that little pebble into a mouthful of bread, go on, go on. Do, some, do, do some free jumping off that cliff over there, go on, knock yourself out, you can, you're God, you can do it, it'll be fun. It's not really about that. It's about temptation to become king in an illegitimate way, to become king in a way that is not God's way. And what Jesus knows has to happen is that he has to endure the great trial. There is a great trial that will come upon the world when God's kingdom appears and God's king comes. And Jesus has come to bring all of that Onto himself. So the temptation is powerful. Find an alternative way. And guess who knows? Well, the tempter knows. But the temptation isn't just to naughtiness, it's to a whole other way of bringing the kingdom of God. 
Now we see this playing out, this trial. It plays out through the whole gospel story. So think about it. Jesus faces opposition from religious opponents. He's yelled at by demonic powers. He's confronted with the chaotic powers of evil represented by storms. He's laughed at by the pious. He's dismissed by politicians. He's betrayed by one of his closest friends. And it's all designed to show that Jesus is indeed God's king. And the coming of God's king and God's kingdom has gone and kicked the hornet's nest. And as Jesus kicks the hornet's nest through his person and works and words, it provokes the spiritual powers of evil because Jesus is calling time on their dominion. And all those different responses to Jesus just reveal that very thing. The king has come, the kingdom is here, and the king is drawing all the enemy fire onto himself. So much for Matthew 4. The second place we find, or the final place we find the word pyrasmos is in Matthew 26. Now this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is the prelude to the cross, if you like. And Jesus is wrestling in the garden. He's wrestling in prayer. He knows he is hours away from his crucifixion. He agonizes in prayer as he wrestles with the weight of what he alone must do. In fact, Jesus must have been wearing a WWID bracelet in the garden. What would I do? Not not what would Jesus do? You don't need that. WWID. Because he prays his own prayer. If you read the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it's possible for this cup to pass me by, then let it be so. But not my will, but yours be done. Now what is that? But deliver me from the time of trial. Your will be done. Jesus prays his own prayer. He shows what, is, what the real heart of that prayer is. In some ways, those two petitions on Jesus' lips in Gethsemane bring together the, the two parts of the Lord's Prayer. The honor and glory of God and the kingdom and God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven and reveals that that will is the cross. And Jesus, as a faithful Israelite, the representative of God's people and God's very king, submits to that vocation, submits to that calling. And so of course the Lord's Prayer is about Jesus because Jesus prays it at the moment where God reveals God the most clearly, which is the cross. So to take the Lord's Prayer and to make it into a bedtime moment of piety is really not the heart of the Lord's Prayer at all. Even though you may use it in that way, But now you might want to think a little bit more carefully and deeply when you do. Jesus prays, take this cup from me. Let this trial pass by me, knowing full well that the answer can only be no. And then he submits and says, your will be done. And then when he finds Peter and the disciples snoozing, He says, stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. And that's the word pyrasmos again. Matthew 4, 
trial in the wilderness. Matthew 6, the telegraphed trial in the, in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 26, the trial as it reaches its climax. And Jesus thinking about his friend and saying, you pray that you don't get into this too. You know, this sermon could very easily have become about morals, about behaviour. It could have become about sin management and keeping our noses clean. I'll give you three alliterated points to make sure that you don't fall into temptation this week. D for disconnect your internet connection. D for don't swear at other drivers. D for drop the rolling pin when you are arguing with your husband. Saving lives at City Church. (laughs) Saving penalty points as well, I think. But that would almost have felt like a betrayal of the prayer. It would have turned the Lord's Prayer and the gospel story to which it belongs into a story about us, when really it's a story about the Lord himself. The Lord's Prayer brings us back again and again and again and again to Jesus. And when we pray with the whole of the gospel in mind, do not bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one, we're doing something important. We're acknowledging in this moment that Jesus and Jesus alone has already endured the time of trial for us as our king. Just as we see it unfolding from Matthew 4 through the whole of the gospel, it's all Jesus. It's all him as our representative, as our king. And it's all him as he draws it all to a climax at the cross. So when Jesus tells Peter to stay awake, pray that you don't come into the time of trial, it's it's basically an exhortation to keep your eyes on me, Peter. Keep awake, see me, watch me, hear me. I am the one taking the trial on myself. It's not you. Pray that you may not get into this. Don't have delusions of grandeur, Peter. Don't think that you could be the one that brings the kingdom. Don't think even though you have said, I will go with you wherever you go, Jesus, even though you've made a monkey of yourself in terms of making big promises and then failing, don't think for a moment that you can do what I can do. Don't think for a nanosecond that you can carry the cross, Peter. You will suffer and you will know pain and you will know trial, but this is my fight. The great trial comes on me, Peter. So stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. Put your sword away. Put your agenda down. You know what happens next in the Garden of Gethsemane? Someone, and they're anonymous, which probably means Peter, pulls out a sword. I mean, it's something about the name Peter, isn't there? They've been Peters and they're <laughs> slashing their swords around. Yeah, put it, put your sword away. Someone slashes the high priest's ear off. He's not understood. This is not what the time of trial looks like. It's not your fight. It's not a fight with weapons. It's a fight that only the Messiah can fight. See, Peter was wrong. And so are you if you believe that you can rescue yourself 
by your own powers, moral, intellectual, practical, theological, whatever they may be. Like Peter, Jesus says to us, you will indeed face trial, conflict, testing, temptation, or whatever you want to call it. So to pray, don't bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one, is an acknowledgement that the decisive victory has been won by our great and conquering King Jesus. When you get to that bit in the Lord's Prayer from now on, you must think Jesus alone conquered. Hallelujah. And see, that empowers you to pray it. Because it means that whatever conflict and trial and test you now face, whatever temptations of personal peccadilloes, whatever sense of an evil day that breaks upon you or upon us as a church, Jesus conquered. The great victory is done, finished, won. The blood of Christ has conquered sin and death and Satan. And now every other skirmish that we face, we face as the conquering army, if you like. We are the winners in Christ Jesus. We're the ones who have been brought into the victory. Paul writes to the Colossian church, God has delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's where we live. That's our whole address. And now the trials and the battles and the conflicts that we face are not some kind of deathly thing where, oh my goodness, is, will, will God come through? No, God has come through for you. He's come through for the world. He drew it all on himself. And he told his followers to pray that we wouldn't have to do that because he alone can do that. And so when as a church we pray this prayer, we say we are not the saviour and you know we're not we're not the messiah we are all very naughty boys and girls and so we have to put away our swords and our agendas and watch and pray and anticipate the return of the king we've got to sometimes stubbornly and faithfully refuse to fight on the enemy's terms that's what Peter or whoever got wrong in the garden. Draw a sword, slash off the high priest's ear. That's doing things on the enemy's terms. So the enemy of our souls would want to do everything to draw our attention away from Jesus as the conqueror. Would do everything in his power to tell us that we have the power. That it's somehow latent in us. And that Jesus came to just somehow give us a little bit of a nudge to remind us of who we can truly be, it's not the point. Because it's all Jesus. He alone conquers. And so we get to lean on everlasting arms. We get to lean into Jesus and trust him for our tomorrows, even while we struggle with today. We hold our nerve individually as we wait for our salvation, our final full salvation. We refuse to despair over our sinfulness. Here's an enemy tactic and trick for you. It's to basically tell you that you are wretched and rubbish and that your sinfulness makes you outside of the reach of God's grace and kindness. It's a terrible, terrible lie because all but the most narcissistic of us know that we suck 
deeply and that we are a massive walking bundle of contradictions who one morning will worship Jesus from one side of our mouth and the next day will swear at the driver or whoever it might, whatever it might be. The one day will open our eyes to read the scriptures and the next will open our eyes to view unhelpful material online. We're a walking bundle of contradictions and Satan loves to agree with that and to highlight that. Sometimes we are awfully wretched on ourselves and we've forgotten that it's Jesus who saves us and has saved us and is saving us. But the temptation comes with this sort of kind of pseudo-promise that if you just try a little bit harder, if you become a little bit more pious, if you pray a little bit more, if you have a little bit of a longer quiet, if you, if you have a quiet time, if you go to church more regularly, if you're more faithful at a small group, if you get into an accountability group, if you do all these things, you can be changed. And it's all lies because it's all looking for things that you can do that will change you inside. And the one thing that you need to do is just look to Jesus. Just look to him. Turn your eyes to him. We see you, Jesus. You alone can save. You alone conquered. All my crap was on you on the cross. Every last drop of it. Sin past, sin present, sin future. Christ became not sins, he became sin for us so that in him we might be the faithfulness, the righteousness of God. And so when the enemy's lies and accusations come sailing in, you get your bat. That's kind of like a bat slash driver kind of hockey stick. Remember, remember, remember. When you pray this prayer, you pray it because the time of trial has fallen already on the Saviour and he's emerged from it victorious. Let's train ourselves to see all of our battles and trials within that overarching victory of the King. And then, when we do, we will faithfully endure and not lose heart. Then we will watch and wait and not seek to force the Lord's hand. Then we will confess in our weakness that he is our sufficiency without contradicting ourselves or him by ill-advised attempts at self-securing.